October 2011. German tourists Stefan Rahman and his partner Heike Dorsch anchor off the coast of a remote French Polynesian island after three years at sea. Their time on the tranquil South Pacific island quickly becomes a nightmare when Stefan vanishes and Heike is attacked. The murder in paradise of Stefan Rahman led to gory headlines across world news. But what is the truth? Primary sources for this episode include GQ, The Standard, Sky News, news.com.au and The Mirror. Hi all, welcome back to episode 88 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of those who have gone missing or have been murdered abroad. And this is a very remote one for this episode. So I am back with another episode for you guys. I thought because I had the time and I had been reading about this case since someone requested French Polynesia that I would get on it and record it for you. So first off, I want to say welcome to new patron Molly. Thank you so much for coming on board. Now, I'd also want to thank listener Lee, who sent through a PayPal donation, um, which is why the website is back up. So thank you so much, Lee. Lee is only my second Aussie patron. Um, Most of them are from overseas. So I'm going to get straight into this because I don't have much else to say, but this is a patron location request for patron Jessica, who came on board about six weeks ago, I believe. Jessica is my first Aussie patron. She's from a beautiful city, which is far north New South Wales, called Newcastle. Um, Our version of Newcastle, not Newcastle Geordie Shore. So thank you so much for coming on board and for requesting French Polynesia as your choice. So when Jessica requested French Polynesia, it's really weird because I always thought that it was, um, I always thought that it was a region. It's kind of hard to explain and I I will get into it, you know, but the whole region, including a number of different islands that you may know, like Bora Bora, etc., Tahiti, all kind of encompass French Polynesia. And I thought that New Caledonia was part of it, but as far as I know, it's not. And I I was going to do um, New Caledonia and bring my friend on board because it was our year nine French trip where we went there. So I was really kind of disheartened that it wasn't part of it. And luckily, a listener came on board and emailed and said um, that basically New Caledonia, which I've looked for cases there, he finally sent me one, um, sent me a case from there. So I believe that was, where was he, where's he emailed me? Oh God. Oh yeah. It was Matt. So he sent me like a bunch of really cool articles and I think cases, sorry. And I think the one ties into a listener who knows this person. So that's all coming up probably in the next month or so. But New Caledonia aside, I will do that at some point. But I was like, well, where am I going to find a case? Because I couldn't think of anything horrible happening in Bora Bora or Tahiti. They're all very beautiful South Pacific islands that people go there to relax on the beach. And then I came across the case of Stefan Rahman. And part of me wished that I had not. So GQ did an amazing deep dive into this case. It's quite a long article um, and I want to give a shout out to that. It's by a guy called James Vlahos and I will be referring to this quite a lot throughout because GQ is the only one that has done a full, fully fledged deep dive into this case. The article is called The Last Sale of the Adventure Seekers by James Vlahos and it's really beautiful and it says it's his first article for GQ. So James, you are very good. Unfortunately, the rest of the sources are in German because these were two German people that were affected. 
And that includes Heike, one of the victims, her book that she's written, um, that is in German as well. And I would have loved to have read it if it was in an English edition. Um, so most of those are in German and also interviews with Heike are in German as well. And YouTube wouldn't allow me to have English subtitles. So GQ was really the one to lean back on because the rest of the sources were really just, you know, news, short news updates on what was going on with the trial and the news when it happened to Stefan and things like that. So I will refer to GQ throughout. This article was published before the trial of the murderer. So after that, I will basically be updating you with other articles. Unfortunately, the only issue with the GQ article is that it doesn't talk about the two main people, Stefan and Hikar, really who they were, what they did, what propelled them to end up sailing the world on a catamaran. So I got that information kind of from other little bits, other little articles here and there. I'd really love to read Hiker's book. So if anyone knows if there's an English edition, um, I would love to read it. It's called Blue Vota Libel or something like that. I'm surprised they haven't turned Stefan Rahman's story into a movie um, because a horror movie or, you know, something like that, because it seems like the type of thing that people would cash in on. Um, it's got elements of, I don't know, it's got deliverance elements and the Green Inferno um, and movies like that. But I really, I really hope that they don't and that Hiker will kind of nip that in the bud if that was to happen. The last thing I want to say is that this story was world headlines went mental when this happened and started writing that cannibals lived on the island and that Stefan had been murdered and cannibalized. There is no evidence of that. The prosecutors on the island, um, which we'll be going to, said that didn't happen. Pretty much everyone in the case has said that's bullshit, but that doesn't stop people from continually writing bullshit headlines. And I was just looking on how to say Hiker's name online and I came across more YouTubers who were pretty much getting their little clicks from writing, you know, that he was cannibalized. That's not true from what we know. Um, and I will be getting into that as we get into it. But I wanted to say that at the start, because if you look up Stefan Rahman, almost every headline will say that he was cannibalized. And I don't want to really go down that road. So again, most of the sources for this are in German. So I am going to do my best with the English sources that are out there. Um, so let's get into the story of Stefan and Heike. Heike did live, but she is a secondary victim. So I'll be talking about her quite a lot. There's not much out there about Stefan Rahman. Unfortunately, the sources can't even get his birthday or, you know, how old he was right, which I find really disrespectful when someone has been murdered. But from what I can kind of deduce, he was 40. Um, and that's because there is an IMDb that I don't know if he put it up or someone else did. It would have to have been him. Um, it says that he was born on March 24th, 1971 in Pinneberg, Schleswig-Holstein, Germany. At the time of his death, he was 40 when he died on or around October 9th, 2011 in French Polynesia. Now, he was born and raised in Hamburg, the German city of Hamburg. He had a long-term girlfriend called Heike. Now, before anyone says anything, in case you're German or speak German, I've looked up how to say this. Nine out of 10 people say Heike, and that one person out of 10 says Heike. So I'm going to say Heike. It's H-E-I-K-E. So she was 37 at the time that all of this happened. And from what I could find, they were both economists back in the corporate world in Germany. So when they went off on their adventures around the world, you know, it's like 
you know, two polar opposite lives. According to Hiker, Stefan had boundless energy. He loved travel. He loved learning about different cultures when he went there. He really wanted to, um, you know, help people, but also stay at, a, stay at a place for a period of time and not just a couple of days, but really feel ingratiated into the the community. And I guess ultimately that would be his downfall. There's quite a lot of pictures of their travels out there. Stefan is tall, um, in a very German way, rugged, masculine, athletic looking. Um, Heike is quite attractive. She's got blonde hair. She's slim. Germans get around quite a lot. You'll always meet them when you travel. And they kind of, the two of them kind of have the look that most Germans have, that they're kind of tall and athletic and have, you know, strong you know, facial features. Um, and Stefan kind of looked like a guy that would, you know, protect you. Um, there's pictures of them in a kind of waterfall creek pond, I think on one of the islands. One of them I'm looking at there, they're petting like a giant tortoise. Um, yeah. And there is a picture of them when they docked in the place that ultimately Stefan would be murdered in, which I'll get into. Heike and Stefan set out on their catamaran, which is called Bayou, I believe. It's B-A-J-U. In 2007, they set off from Turkey, which was the first place that they went from. For a year, for years-long sail around the world, there was no specific end date. And at the time of Stefan's death, they had been traveling the world this way for over three years um, on this catamaran, which was quite... I think they're quite expensive. Um, I can't, unfortunately, find a picture of the catamaran. Now, this the couple were in the South Pacific and they ultimately intended on wrapping up this years-long trip in New Zealand the following year. They'd been, I guess, across Europe, the Mediterranean. This is one of the things that unfortunately isn't in any of the news that you can read about them and that's why I'd like to read Hiker's book. I know that they'd been just to the Galapagos Islands. They'd been to a bunch of other amazing places around the Americas, the Caribbean, and then they'd crossed the Pacific. And as I said, Germans are really prolific travellers. You'll meet them wherever they go. They're really interested in travel. I think it's the one kind of nationality that I swear I meet in any corner of the world, although I've actually never been to Germany. I've kind of been through it. Now, the couple would often be on the catamaran for weeks at a time without touching land, but their photos look really happy. Um, they were living the dream that most people would want to do at some point in their lives or retire and just live like that and seeing some of the most beautiful places in the world. Now, unfortunately, when I think of being on a yacht and traveling in these remote areas, I think of movies like Dead Calm, which I guess it's an Australian movie. It's from the 90s with Nicole Kidman and Sam Neill and Billy Zane. And they end up meeting a psychopath, Billy Zane, who ends up on their boat and it's not good news. And that's kind of what I think of, but I think most people are a bit more optimistic than me. So Stefan and Heike had just travelled from the Galapagos Islands, which is just off the coast of Ecuador. We've discussed it kind of a little bit before. Darwin did a lot of his studies there. It's often in people's, you know, top 10 bucket list. And they pretty much crossed the Pacific the Pacific because French, French Polynesia is directly between California and Australia, right in the middle of the Pacific. That's why there's a lot of, you know, Hawaiian influences and a lot of them descend from Hawaiians. 
Hiker said that they were sunbathing and swimming and enjoying this wonderful life away from the office and from, you know, their corporate lives in Germany. And who would want to go back to that after living like this? It would be such a shock to the system. According to GQ, quote, the bayou had a device that was supposed to sound an alarm whenever another boat got within 30 nautical miles. But during the entire passage from the Galapagos, it had never gone off, unquote. So that kind of says how remote this was and how very few people were out there. But they had never come across any trouble on their travels so far. I can only presume they'd saved, you know, quite a lot of money. There was a quote from Hiker that kind of indicated that they'd been together for decades. I kind of do believe that because she said it had been a dream for decades. And I think they'd been together for a very long time. So I'm going to talk a little bit about French Polynesia, but in particular, the island where Stefan and Heike found themselves in this living nightmare. So the nation of French Polynesia is spread over about 100 islands, and it's an overseas French, what they call collectivity of France, where French is primarily spoken. And much like, you know, if you go to Tahiti or New Caledonia, that's why we went in our French trip in high school because I think France was a bit too far for them to take us. So I've been to New Caledonia and these are kind of in the same vicinity. Tahiti is a neighbour of French Polynesia um, and Bora Bora is one of the islands of French Polynesia. So it's kind of in the vicinity, I guess, of Fiji, Vanuatu, Tahiti, Bora Bora. Bora Bora is the really beautiful place where they have the famous beach, the bungalows over the water. Unfortunately, I only can refer to the fact that it was on an episode of Keeping Up With The Kardashians where Kim lost like her earring or whatever, but it's been on people's bucket lists for a lot longer than that, including me, but it's quite expensive. I would love to go sometime. As I said, in fact, French Polynesia is is exactly between Australia and California. So when we fly from Australia, you know, Melbourne to LA, it's about 15 hours, so it's halfway. The islands of French Polynesia are spread over 2,000 kilometres and are divided into different archipelagos. So the one that we are going to for this episode of Unknown Passage is the Marquesas Archipelago, and these are called the Marquesas Islands, and they are so beautiful. It's like something out of a dream. And I know I've said that a million times on this podcast, but when I kind of explain it, you'll understand why Stefan and Heike spent, you know, six weeks there when they were only going to stay for a shorter amount of time. The islands are rugged and mountainous and hilly. Um, They're beautiful, but they're not somewhere where tourists would go for a luxury resort or, you know, high-end restaurants or things like that. They're really not equipped for tourists. They've got small, very small populations and there's nothing in the way of luxury. So this is why going there on the catamaran was easier because they would be anchored off the coast as other people would come in as well and, you know, anchor themselves as well. And, um, you know, they would just buy from locals and they'd have their own supplies on board. The French Polynesian islands, the Marquesas Islands, are great for people who love hiking or diving or swimming. There's a really important whale pod there, so whale watching is really magnificent there. And generally those who come in on yachts are the best kind of equipped because getting there is a bit of a pain in the ass. You've got to fly to Tahiti and then get on a small plane to one of these islands and then get on ferries to the other ones. So it's quite, you know, difficult. And I think being on the catamaran was the best way for anyone to see 
this part of the world. According to Lonely Planet, quote, sculpted by sky-piercing moss green peaks and lined with vivid turquoise lagoons, sultry French Polynesia is a place to take its slow and experience warm, laid-back island culture, unquote. And if you look at pictures of it, you would mistake it for Kauai in Hawaii or one of the Hawaiian islands. Now, the term Polynesians you've probably heard, and this refers to a range of races in this part of the world. So I looked this up and it includes Rodomans, Samoans, so Samoa, Tongans from Tonga, Ninuans, Cook Islands, Maoris, Tahitian Mahoe, sorry, Hawaiians, Marquesans, and New Zealand Maoris. And they are the subsets of what they call Austronesian peoples. Polynesian people are beautiful, friendly, and smiley. Anyone who has been to this part of the world will know that they are, you know, famous for their warmth. And that's more kind of the areas that are used to tourists, I suppose. But when Heike and Steve, Stefan went to the Marquesas, they were so kind of entranced by how warm the people were because tourism is very important to these parts of the world, at least not the tribes that live off the land. They have a very rich culture. And again, if you watch videos of this, it's very reminiscent of Hawaii um, and Maori culture from New Zealand and things like that. Unfortunately, even though Stefan and Heike couldn't have known the cultural history of what they were walking into and how tight-knit these communities were. They're dealing with remote islands with about 2,000 people on these islands. Um, they A lot of them live very basically. And the GQ article kind of talks about how tourists will often think that they're being accepted, but it's really quite, you know, superficial. And that's why I recommend that you go and read the GQ article. Now, the couple had been on the water for 17 days without seeing land when they finally stumbled across the island, the Marquesas Island of Fatuhiva, which is an island of the Marquesas, and they touched down and anchored on August 30, 2011. They were really entranced immediately. There is a picture of them with the backdrop of the kind of mountains of the island. The coast is fringed with palm trees and the rugged cliff tops kind of face out to what Stefan and Heike were looking at. And you can imagine how they felt. And I believe the GQ article refers to Heike saying that she felt like they had found Eden. It really does look like paradise. And this photo, they just look extremely happy. GQ describes them as having that kind of disheveled, sandy head look where they've been on the water for ages. And it's quite a kind of eerie photo when you realise, you know, what was coming for Stefan and Heike. And in the photo, there is a, another catamaran behind them because people often, you know, pull into this part of the world. So the Marquesas are 15 volcanic islands and Fatuhiva, which they first pulled into, is one of them. Six of these islands are inhabited and the rest are not. There's a population of about 10,000 people across all of the islands and on Fatuhiva there is only 2,000. The population is overwhelmingly Catholic, which is something that was kind of introduced during colonial days, which I'll get into in a minute. There's no Instagram-esque bungalows over water like you would expect in Bora Bora. There's no restaurants. There's no cute little tiki bars for tourists. This is a rugged slice of paradise that few would really be lucky enough to experience in their lives. 
The Marquesas Islands are really famous in their own right. And it really blew me away when I realised just how many kind of household names had been there or drawn inspiration from this part of the world. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island, he had gone there during his travels and drawn inspiration for his works. Gauguin, who he's a French, he was a French artist and he often, he drew the islanders of Tahiti and French Polynesia. A lot of you may have heard of him. He had stayed on the Marquesas Islands for a long period of time. And season four of Survivor took part on the island of Nuku Hiva, which is nearby to Fado Hiva. Gauguin actually painted his home of Hiva Oa, which is a nearby island. Joseph Jaffe, who's a German ethnologist who has lived and worked on Nuku Hiva, spoke to GQ and said, quote, this is the big problem. There are too many fantasies around here. Very few people are sober enough to look behind the scenes and it isn't easy to do, unquote. And he doesn't mean sober as in alcohol. He just means that they're, they're not kind of swept up in the whole travel bug and all that excitement. They're kind of more rooted in reality, I suppose. Unfortunately, the Marquesas Islands have a very historic reputation for being home to, you know, a couple of hundred years ago and further back, quite, you know, savage natives who would murder people who would try to get on their land, which is something that we've talked about, you know, previously on the past, but more modern cases. There were cannibal tribes as well back in the day. And the writer Herman Melville actually wrote of this when he touched down in the Marquesas Islands, basically said that they would, I'm doing this from memory, it was in GQ, they basically said that they would um, lure you using their women into the island, and then they would murder you and take their boat. But that's not the way it is today. And unfortunately, most of the headlines that accompanied Stefan's murder, it makes you really angry when you keep seeing people perpetuating this lie. Um, cannibalism, these are all things of the past. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I know the word doesn't have a whole lot of meaning anymore because people throw it around a lot, but this is an example of actual racism, um, saying that they are all cannibals and that it still exists. And that's why journalists should be held accountable for this stuff. Cannibalism was once a ceremonial ritual here where they would, you know, sacrifice people. But most historians who know this area in and out say that cannibalism hasn't been practiced for over a hundred years or more. Unfortunately, Stefan's murder gave the press full reign to write repulsive, gory headlines about what became of him. And honestly, to me, I don't think that that's at all what became of him. On islands where, you know, in the past, when the colonials would infiltrate these areas, they would bring things like alcohol and guns and disease from the outside world. And once upon a time, there was around 80,000 Marquesans across these islands, and that was in the 18th century. But in the earliest 20th century, because all of that, over just, just over 100 years later, there was just over 2,000 because they had been completely wiped out. The locals are very close here. Visitors may feel that because of their smiles and warmth that they are accepted into the local fold, but I don't know how people can possibly think that they are because these people and their families have lived here for generations since pretty much the beginning of time. There's not many expats living on these islands. They will protect their own and there is very much a case of us versus them in regards to these headlines very much made that come back for these people, this us versus them mentality. 
And Stefan's case very much unfortunately showcases that and it became less about Stefan and more about, I guess, race relations. But let's get back to Stefan and Heike. So Stefan and Heike thoroughly enjoyed their time on the Macase Islands of French Polynesia and actually they ultimately ended up staying for six weeks that they loved it that much. They were staying on the bayou, their catamaran, which was anchored just off the shore and they, it had its own dinghy so they could come and go from the catamaran. According to GQ, they spent their days spearfishing. They would meet locals and these locals would invite them to their homes for meals and they would learn to drum, you know, like island drumming with the locals. And, you know, they loved it so much they just didn't want to leave. Unfortunately, Stefan was killed the day before they were due to leave and this whole six weeks went off it without a hitch. But unfortunately, as these stories go, they crossed paths with someone that, you know, as fate would have it, would change the course of their lives forever. So the second last day on the islands, the couple sailed to the island of Nuku Hiva, which is right nearby, to visit Hakati, which is a horse-shaped bay, which is really beautiful. When they were when they docked um, on Nuku Hiva, there was no one else around and they set off on foot to this bay, which took about 15 minutes walk. And it's very remote. And this is the, probably the closest you can get to being stranded on an island alone. They reached Haka sorry, I'm really bad with these island ones, Hakawi, which is just a settlement of about 10 or 15 houses. It looks very much deserted. These people are out and about doing things probably during the day, you know, farming and things like that, fishing. Suddenly, Stefan and Heike spotted a man. He was standing in the middle of a dirt road in the settlement next to a horse and he was shirtless. These islands are very hot and humid, so that totally makes sense. Now, GQ describes him as having a build like a football player, quote, thick, tattooed and more than six foot tall. But so were most Marquesan men. Heike decided that he looked totally normal, unquote. Now, this man was very warm. He smiled. He introduced himself to the couple as Arahano Haiti. That's his surname, Haiti. Um, a lot of publications later on, all but GQ, refer to this man as Henry. I believe that's either his middle name or a name he just prefers to go by or Hen Henri, which is the French version. But for this instance, I only feel comfortable calling him by his first full name, Arahano. Now, Arahano has a tattoo on his chest of a cannibal warrior in a canoe, which is a practice, you know, that was rife. But unfortunately, this tattoo would play into, it was rife during the 19th century. But as I said, it hasn't happened for over 100 years. But the fact that he had this tattoo would only play into the lore of this. He's also got like kind of those, one of those wrap around arm tattoos um, on kind of your bicep that I noticed on quite a lot of, you know, Maori people. I'm looking at a picture of Arahano and he's an incredibly good looking guy. In this photo, he just looks like a nice guy. He's really, really good looking. Um, he's carrying like a bunch of melons from like the tree and he's got sunglasses on his head and he's just got um, white shorts on. This wasn't taken by the couple. This is just a photo that was released to the media. So they had a contact on this island and he seemed like a really warm, nice guy, but they didn't swap details. They just went back to their boat. They stayed on the boat by the village that night. And the next day, as they walked through the village again, they saw Arahano again. They were returning from a hike to this waterfall, which is quite remote. And they started talking to Arahano. 
The following morning, they were due to leave the Marquesa Islands for good, and I don't know what their next stop was, probably Tahiti or somewhere in, else in French Polynesia. But Stefan started talking to Arahano because on the French Polynesian Islands, particularly the Marquesa Islands, goat hunting is a very cultural tradition that a lot of people do and then a lot of people who visit these islands want to take part in your hunting goats on the island this tradition Stefan had tried to tee up twice before while he was on the island the first time as luck would have it the guide did not show up the second time he organized it the guide did show up but his gun jammed so this was the third third time lucky organizing this and when I was reading that it kind of gave me a bit of a chill up my spine because this may have, this probably never would have happened had the first two times, you know, gone off without a hitch. It was almost like fate to Stefan that he ran into Arahano that day and Arahano very happily offered to take him goat hunting. Stefan offered to bring his gun. He had a gun back on the bayou, which is a pretty clever thing to do because you've got to protect yourself out there. Um, and Arahano said, no, no, don't bother. I've got guns. So off they went to goat hunt because it was Stefan and Hiker's last day on the Marques Islands. Hiker stayed back on the bayou and as the hours ticked by and the sun set and darkness set in, she fully expected to see Stefan in the dinghy heading back to the bayou, thrilled to have ticked off another item on his bucket list because this was, but he did not. Around 6pm that night, Hiker heard the voice of Arahano calling from the darkness of the sea as she sat on the bayou and then he came into focus and he was in their dinghy and making his way to the catamaran. The issue is Heike speaks German because they're German and she speaks fluent English as well. But Arahano, because this is French Polynesia, he speaks French as a first language and only tiny bits of English because they don't have a whole lot of interaction from outside influences. But ultimately she got out of him that Stefan was injured in an accident in the forest when they were goat hunting and Heike started to panic. She jumped in the dinghy with Arahano and they gunned it to shore. Once they hit shore, they ran into the forest on a forest path and they pretty much walked really fast or ran for about 15 minutes and Heike when they got to the end of the path when it ran out she asked Arahano where's Stefan where did you leave him like what's this accident according to GQ Arahano replied quote I don't know where I put him Heike exploded quote you don't remember you idiot how could that be unquote so they're dealing with cultural breakdowns as well and, you know, language breakdowns. Now, Heike suddenly turned to run the other way. She was going to go and get help from someone else and she was calling for Stefan into the darkness of the forest, but there was no reply. It was dead silence. She kept running and the trail suddenly disappeared under her feet and she was completely disoriented and didn't know where she was. She turned around because she felt a presence behind her and Arahano was standing there with a shotgun pointed to her head. He said, you die now. Heike grabbed the gun. She started wrestling with Arahano. In this story, Heike is such a hero to me. She 
she survived something so brutal and she ultimately, I think, should have been murdered the way that it was going. She's an incredible woman and tough as nails. She grabbed the gun and started wrestling and ultimately she ended up on her front on the ground and Arahano was on top of her on her back. I'm going to read you from GQ, quote, he grabbed a fistful of her long blonde hair and used it as a handle to bang her head on the forest floor. Hiker managed to get her right hand on the trigger of the gun, but the safety was on and the shotgun wouldn't fire. Arahano began choking her. She felt death closing in and no longer felt like fighting. I've lived my life, I've lived my dream, and okay, fine, she thought. But then Arahano released her throat, allowing her to gulp in air. Hiker felt Arahano's hands reaching under her shirt for her breasts and down into her pants. She could smell his hot, smoky breath. Then she felt him orgasm, grinding against her. Hiker was now breathing so rapidly that she grew dizzy and thought that she was going to faint. Arahano became oddly gentle. Breathe deeply, he said. He held a bottle of water to her lips and told her to drink. As Hiker's body calmed, she tried to reason with Arahano. You are a good man, she said. You aren't like this. If you want money, go to our boat. We have a lot of cash on board. Arahano didn't respond. Instead, he made her sit with her back to the tree, tying her neck to the trunk and her arms behind it. Panic rising again, Hiker became convinced that he was going to decapitate her with his machete. She wished she could do the job herself. I kept thinking, how do I kill myself? I can't take this anymore, not knowing what will happen next. But Arahano didn't swing the blade. Instead, he stuffed her mouth with a sooty t-shirt and stalked off on the trail towards the beach, unquote. When I was reading that, my heart was like in my in my mouth, I swear to God. So Hiker tried to free herself using her hands, you know, behind her back, but she saw Arahano returning and he came up to her again and started yelling at her and he was feigning those cutting motions, you know, across his throat, like, I'm going to fucking kill you. He left again and Hiker waited a few minutes to make sure that he was gone and that he wasn't coming back and she managed to free herself, which is quite a feat. I don't think he did it very tightly in his kind of panic. Now, once she was free, she started stepping and she the trees and branches and things were crunching under her feet and suddenly she saw the lights of a torch heading back her way. Arahano was on his way back. Hiker ran for her life. She ran through trees and branches which gashed her skin and she ran on thorns that were piercing the soles of her feet. And eventually she could smell the citrus fruits of the island which were along the shoreline and she knew that from her time spent there with Stefan. She burst out onto this beach, which was pretty much dark, except it was lit by the moon. And she ran to the water and dove into the water and started frantically swimming to the bayou. That afternoon, Stefan and Hiker had met two new people who had turned up and moored quite close to the bayou. They were Dutch tourists and she was really fearful that Arahano would head to the bayou and kill her there. So she started swimming for that boat instead. She began to panic that her bleeding limbs and feet would attract sharks and that would be her ultimate demise, but she kept swimming and persevered and she reached the yacht and clambered aboard and the occupants of the other boat called the gendarmes, which are the French police on the island. They were called and they arrived about two hours later. Now, the gendarmes took this very seriously, obviously, because they 
you know, Stefan was missing and this had happened to um, Haika. They searched the jungle all night for Arahano, but there was absolutely no trace of him. Once Haika had, you know, dove into the water, he had pretty much retreated into the forest, which he knew very, very well. In fact, they searched for days and finally on the Wednesday, they called Haika into the gendarmerie, which is the police station um, on the main village Nuku Hiva and when she walked in they were very quiet and as she went to sit down they were all standing and Haika knew that something terrible had happened. They told her quote we found a campfire that was three times bigger than the normal hunter's fire. There are human remains in the ashes and we believe they are Stefan's unquote and This is where the international news went nuts. There was only a few remains and bones in, you know, the ashes. But I'm just going to read you a few clips of headlines that GQ kind of showcased to show just how bad the media are and how, as the saying goes, if it bleeds, it leads. So they've got to make it as horrible as possible. Holiday horror on Cannibal Island. He's missing on an island of cannibals. We prefer eating hot dogs to people these days, say outraged islanders. Was it murder out of jealousy? Killer adored girlfriend of the victim. How I escaped the cannibal killer, unquote. Now, this is all despite the fact that cannibalism had not been practiced since probably 150 years ago, but it did not deter the scum of the universe, which today are known as journalists. The international press, unfortunately, made this so bad that the villagers really felt all over again for the first time since, you know, colonialism, that it was us versus them. And they were very much all of a sudden like, no, we're not, if we find this guy, we're not handing him back to you. And you can understand the mentality of that. If this had all been done on the down low, I firmly believe that they would have caught him very quickly with the help of the locals on the Marquesa Islands um, and that he would have been in custody straight away. But GQ said that it was the equivalent, it was the Polynesian equivalent of the OJ Simpson case. So that will mean quite a lot to you who remember that. The villagers saw the on the run Arahano as, I guess, a folk hero of sorts, a, you know, Robin Hood who was protecting his islands from, you know, white colonialists or, you know, a Rob Roy McGregor or something like that. But he managed to stay on the run for weeks on this small island. And considering the police had swarmed the entire island and they were looking everywhere, they believed that he was being fed by locals and sometimes being given shelter. And stories and myths started spreading about where he was and what he was doing. After seven full weeks on the run, Arahano Haiti gave himself up. He was not caught. He just could not be bothered with life on the lamb anymore. It was too hard. He confessed to the murder of Stefan, but his story was somewhat confusing. So before we talk about what Arahano said happened with Stefan, let's talk a little bit about who Arahano Haiti was. Arahano was from a family of seven children on the islands. He had always lived there since he was born. His father, Tiua, was a leader in the Catholic Church on the island and his cousin was a prominent politician of French Polynesia and the girlfriend of a former president who had served five terms in French Polynesia. So they were quite highly regarded. Um, 
This is all from the writer of GQ who flew to Nukuhiva to meet Arahano but was actually rejected from meeting him and wasn't able to but was able to meet up with a translator um, who went around with him and spoke to different people who knew him from the island. And the translator, as, as it would be, um, was Arahano's best friend. That's who the translator is on the island. So I don't know whether you're getting the full picture that's not biased. According to most sources, Arahano was the calm one of his friends in fights. Even if someone threw a punch at him, he would not throw a punch back. They didn't believe that he would kill someone just for no reason and they didn't also believe that he would kill someone to rob them because as far as they were concerned, he didn't have any material desires. But I think this is a really good example of people what people think about you versus what is really going on you know, behind closed doors. One of Arahano's former girlfriends said that she would give him her credit card to use, but he would never use it. That was her reasoning for why he wouldn't rob someone. When people owed him, you know, money, she would have to hound him to collect that money from people. So she was saying that he was, you know, a good person. Her story was, quote, we are sure that something happened, maybe something wrong with Stefan because Arahano is a good guy, unquote. Yep. Arahano had many issues, though, behind closed doors. He was chronically unemployed. He had issues with his long-term girlfriend. He had moved with her to Tahiti a couple of years before. She'd got a job there and he moved there with her, but he couldn't find work, which you would expect him to find a bit more permanent work on a bigger island that's so tourism-driven like Tahiti. He cheated. Um, Sorry, he cheated on her and she found out she broke up with him. He was devastated and he was forced to return to the island of Nukuhiva, which he really saw as his prison. He had no money. He'd lost the love of his life and he was forced to move back in with his father, who was really highly regarded in circles in the Marquesa Islands. According to Arahano and people who kind of knew the family, their father would beat them when he was especially Arahano when he was quite young and locals knew that this domestic sorry the domestic violence was really severe there were seven children his dad had a quite high ranking government job and Arahano really felt that pressure as the son of a man like that who would expect him to follow in his footsteps Arahano felt trapped and really low. He had wanted to join the military when he was, you know, a young man, but his parents had not allowed it. And he knew that his future prospects were very limited on Nukuhiva. Now, to me, I would think that because he knows the island so well, he would be an amazing guide, but it doesn't seem like he, you know, was very forward thinking when it came to getting a job in tourism or anything like that. He seems like he was a little bit he was very much like the world is against me instead of getting out there and trying to make your own luck. So let's get back to what Arahano's story was. Now, Arahano's story was that Stefan had raped him. Now, keep that in mind for later because that story seems to change. So much like what Arahano had done to Heidi, Heike, which was to rape her, he had raped Stefan. So basically his story was that the rape of Heike was just him showing her what Stefan had done. So keep that in mind. 
His version was that he had killed Steph and Rahman in self-defence after they had stopped at a waterfall on their goat hunting hike and Stefan was nude and Arahano took that as sort of a flirtation. So then the story has changed from raping him to not raping him. I just want to let you know you never get the full story out of Arahano, but Arahano might have took that as a flirtatious gesture. Now, Hiker would say that Stefan loved swimming and he would often swim nude, which is a very kind of European thing. Germans do it a lot when you're out. Um, but it's kind of a, it's not really a thing you should do on these particular islands. And many of the locals, GQ goes a lot into this, which is why it's good to read it, um, the article. But a lot of the locals believe that when crimes like this happen on the islands, that the tourists are at fault and they are sexually suggestive. But according to a lot of people that the GQ writers spoke to, the local men are actually the sexually aggressive ones. There was a woman who was interviewed who couldn't go anywhere without men trying to do things to her. But we will know and find out that Arahano had bisexual tendencies and that maybe Stefan had turned him down, which could have been the other side of the coin. I'm going to read to you from GQ, quote, a propensity for shame is not surprising given Arahano's childhood. It is often the case that men with abused backgrounds are very shame prone. The more recent developments in Arahano's life, like having to move back home without a job, would have heightened his sense of inadequacy. And finally, having his girlfriend <clears throat> break up with him a few months before the trial crime could have sensitized him to another sexual reje rejection, unquote. So even Arahano's lawyer didn't believe that that was what had happened, that Stefan had tried anything or anything like that. But as happens in places like this, you would be appalled if it happened somewhere else. But they did look into Stefan's past for evidence of bisexuality and they did not come up with anything, um, obviously. So Basically, one of the great things about the GQ article is that it discusses in depth the views of homosexuality and bisexuality on the islands and the expectation that the men are meant to be these hyper-masculine warriors um, and, you know, be in relationships with women, be in heterosexual relationships. So I'm going to read to you from GQ again, quote, but sexuality on Nuku Hiva, like anywhere else, is complicated. The island has a small community of Ray Ray or men who live as women. And Dean often took me to visit one of them. Dean took me to visit one of them named Romeo. There were only about 25 openly gay people on the island, Romeo said, and many more closeted men and bisexuals. I talked to him for a few more minutes and sensing that we'd reached a dead end, got ready to leave. But then Romeo cleared his throat. You should probably talk to my friends, he said, naming two other Ray Ray on the island. A gendarme was up here from Tahiti just a couple of weeks ago and wanted to know why their numbers were stored on Arahano's phone. One of those two friends was a Ray Ray I'll call Tiki. When Dean and I tracked him down, he said that he had indeed called Arahano. When I asked why, he replied matter-of-factly because I wanted to have sex with him. Three other Ray Ray said that it was known within their circle that Arahano sometimes had sex with men on the island, Tiki and at least one other. But outside of the Ray Ray, Arahano kept his apparent bisexuality a complete secret. It was contrary to the macho image of himself that he projected and Arahano's father, as a conservative church elder, definitely would not approve. As one woman who knows the family put it, Arahano could never say in front of the police or his father, that he liked to sleep with men, unquote. So he was would never have done that even when confessing. So his version of the confession, which I fully believe, is that he's turned the tables, that Stefan was trying something on him as opposed to Arahano trying something on him. 
But all of this shouldn't be an issue, but it is an issue on an island like that. But we all know, I guess at this point, that Arahano has lied, none of his stories add up, and there's a lot of shame, you know, in his background, I suppose. Now, his defence team in court did not try to say Arahano was mentally ill. There was no evidence of that. He was a pretty calm guy and there was no history of violence. The crime did not seem to be premeditated. They believed that he was indeed taking Stefan goat hunting and then something happened or he just decided to kill him. And there couldn't have been much premeditation because they hardly knew each other. Now, poor Hiker had returned to Germany after this. Obviously, you wouldn't want to be on this island after this had happened. And I, I don't know what happened to the boat or anything like that. But in April 2012, just about six months after she got home, she was summoned by the court to return to the Marquesa Islands again. Arahano was in jail on nearby Tahiti, where they jail people. And the police, as gets done in quite a lot of countries, wanted to stage a reconstruction with the two people. Now, if any of you have seen like Asian police, I know they do it in Thailand, they recreate rapes and things like that. And it's truly terrible because you have to go through it all over again physically, although they don't make you rape, be raped. They just recreate it. And if someone hangs themselves, they make them recreate it with like a, a stuffed toy, like I saw one of them recently. So when Heike was forced to return to Nukuhiva in April 2021, she got to sit down next to Arahano in one of the courtrooms and her question was whether or not Stefan had said any last words about anything, um, what his temperament was, I suppose. Arahano said that Stefan was quiet and I guess he must have been very up close to him to kill him because he saw that there was a spot at the base of Stefan's neck that was fluttering. It was like pulsing. Um, and Heike knew that this must be true because when Stefan would be anxious, he would have this kind of pulsing thing. And I'm sure quite a few of you do. Heike really believed that Arahano was remorseful. Now, Arahano never said why he burnt Stefan's bones. There were a few bones and some teeth that were in the big, you know, um, fire that he had built. The teeth were sent back to Germany and positively identified as Stefan's, so we know that it was his. The stories of cannibalism are just unfounded um, just because the body was burnt. Now, I do want to say that the fire was extremely hot for people who are interested in this. According to the Daily Mail, the fire was so hot that bone fragments were found 35 feet away. So, they were spitting out the fire was so hot. So this is one of those cases where I do I do believe that he had disposed of his body by burning it. Most of the time you can't do that, but I think he knew how to burn like a really hot fire and he'd done it for some time. I don't know where he put Stefan when Heike came looking for him and was raped. I, I believe he was probably hidden somewhere and was already dead. Um, I like to think that he was already dead and not alive and Arahano went back, you know, and did something to him. But I guess when he went on the run that night, he started the fire somewhere remote. It kind of blows my mind that the police weren't able to find this fire spot using, you know, where there was smoke coming up or if it was so hot or anything like that. But I think the police really did a good job in this case. Heike ultimately returned to Germany she lives in her hometown. She works for a big company back in her old life. And there's quotes from her own GQ that, you know, says it's 
it's kind of a shock to the system being back there without Stefan and working, you know, a nine to five. It would be really shocking. She still travels. Um, in 2013, uh, December, two years after Stefan was killed um, on Nukuhiva, she went to South Africa and travelled around. According to GQ, quote, her travel philosophy has not changed and socialising only with other tourists sounds no more fulfilling to her now than it did before she ever met Arahano. I'm still talking to strangers when I'm in different places, she says, but her faith is just how much she can learn has crumbled. While the wall between travellers and locals can be lowered, it never comes all the way down. You think that you know a place after travelling there for so long, but actually you have no idea what is going on, Hiker said. So what happened to Arahano? He was jailed for 28 years um, after a trial in 2014. That is a really good sentence, I believe, for there. He was 33 at the time, so no parole. They said a minimum of 18 years, so he'll be in his 50s when he gets out, or if he does the full term, he'll be 60. Arahano does not have to worry about money or what he will do for a job. He will wallow away in probably a really hot, shitty prison um, in Tahiti. And, you know, I'm sure he'll have a lot of regrets. So according to sailworld.com, they have a quote from the deputy mayor of the island, Deborah Commit. Kamatiti, um, and she was really disgusted. Quote, she shakes her head in disgust, unable to comprehend the turmoil that has descended upon her community in recent days. We feel very hurt, very angry and hurt, she says. What they did with this story is racism. It's an insult to all Marquesans, unquote, which I completely agree with. It was disgusting. Um, there's people still doing the story on YouTube, still doing the cannibal story, version of events, which really disgusts me. Um, Americans, Aussies, Germans, they're all kind of fueling the fire. Um, so if you're wondering what Heike's story is called, I'm just, her book is called, it's called Blauwasser Leben, which is, means blue water life, I believe. Um, it's, a only released in German, unfortunately. It's by Heike Dorsch and it will tell her version of events, which I think would be incredibly jarring. Heike had written books, you know, in the past before this happened um, and I'm sure that it was quite cathartic in order to um, write the book of what happened. It's got the picture of her and Stefan on the cover of them as they pulled into the Marquesa Islands, I guess, un not knowing that this would be where Stefan would meet his end. Heike is a hero as far as I'm concerned. You would have had to have forced me to return um, to front him. They had to reconstruct this crime. So Heike was hiking through the wilderness in the forest with this guy who had killed him. Um, so I just think she's an incredible person. So if you're interested in this and speak or read German, I, th I think please support her and, you know, I'm doubt she would want to speak any more on this. This was 10, almost 10 years ago, but I'm sure it would be incredibly raw. I can't even imagine. Um, I don't believe that Arahano was ever tried for the sexual assault of Haika and never says anything like that or the rape. So places are different. They may not have recognised, you know, rape as a crime there. Um, I'm not entirely sure. But this is a rare case, but, you know, if you are going somewhere remote, please be aware of your surroundings and don't think that everybody is out to help you. Um, there are many good people out there, but I guess you just don't know. But again, Stefan was a big masculine tall dude who probably could have defended um, himself. And 
I think he was probably just stunned by Arahano with the gun. Um, he probably snuck up on him or something like that. But if you are going to share this story, please don't continue the cannibal version because I'm literally just looking at search right now and mirror cannibal trial headline Stefan Rahman eaten by cannibals South Sea Islander believed to have been killed and eaten um it's just really gross so my uh, condolences to Stefan's family and my utmost respect to um hiker so that was um, Jessica's request. I would never have chosen French Polynesia had she not requested that. So thank you so much. Um, it's a really terrible, terrible case. That very much reminds me in a way of the Dahlia Yehia case in Nepal because it, they're both cases of people you think that people are out to help you, locals, but indeed, you know, they're not always. But this place is really beautiful and if you ever get a chance to go there, um, it's quite incredible, including Tahiti and I would love to go to Tahiti at some point. So become a patron at patreon.com. I've got a number of different tiers that you can join. You get a patron location request um, after your first month or two when you join and that's your perk and you get access to the Patreon community in there, which is the only kind of social media that I have. The website is back up for now, but I do have to redo the domain. So if it goes down again, it won't be for long because it needs to be renewed. It's unknownpassagepodcast.com. Leave a rating or review if you like the show on your podcast platform of choice. Email any case suggestions to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. And yeah, so the next episode will be out early next week. So you've got two this week. Um, it may be... Stephen, um, it may, Stephen, sorry, I'm stuck in this case. It may be Amy, it may be Paul, um, maybe Laura. I'm not entirely sure yet. It may be one of my choosing because I may veer off from patron location requests just for a week or so, um, to kind of slot my own in. I've got quite a number of really interesting cases coming up and I think, yeah, next week will be one of them because I keep adding, ideas to my spreadsheet. I've got about 600 cases on it now. And then I've got a short list of cases that I want to do. Um, and a couple of been, them have been sent to me from people. I, I like when people send me case suggestions. Um, just don't send me Natalie Holloway or Madeline McCann. Okay. Um, I will talk to you then and have a good week. Bye.